Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rail Group On Air, presented by Railway Age and Railway Track and Structures magazines and International Railway Journal. I'm your host, Bill Wilson, and I am the editor-in-chief of RTNS Magazine, and welcome to another podcast. This is Rail Group On Air. This is Bill Wilson, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Track and Structures magazine. Engineers know concrete can float. And there are some non-engineers out there that know concrete can float. But when you put tons of weight on concrete that is floating, well, that's a whole different ballgame. And just for fun, why not have it in a seismic sensitive area with wind gusts, water levels that fluctuate, and traffic that provides constant pushing and shoving. The I-90 floating bridge in the state of Washington is a world's first, and running right down the middle of it are sound transit train tracks. It's an engineering feat like no other. But as Supper Sabani will tell you, the project can take a sudden twist at any moment, forcing redesigns, special meetings, and necessary tweaks. I had the privilege to talk to the principal construction manager about this Miracle Bridge, which is expected to be completed later this year. So here is my interview with Supper Sobani. Are you guys finished or close to finish on this on this bridge project? Uh, well, I guess it depends on how you define finish. Um, so I'm the principal construction manager for the civil construction project. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I always like to use the analogy that the you know the civil contractor builds kind of you know the skeleton of the system, and then we have a follow-on systems contractor, and they build the brains and nervous system of the operation, uh, and then the trains eventually kind of act as the the muscle moving our people around the region. Um, so we'll be finished with the civil piece. Uh, we're scheduled to um, towards the end of this year. I mean, we're still dealing with some of the fallout from the uh, COVID-19. Uh, impacts and you know there's probably be a little bit of a trickle into uh, 2021 but nothing too significant uh, at this point mm-hmm. and then the systems contractor is supposed to finish around the end of 2021 uh, and then beyond that there's going to be some uh, you know some some uh, system testing just you know trains running on the rails without any passengers uh, right. before we actually get into our revenue service which is scheduled for 2023. Okay and when did this when did your portion of the project begin? We got access to the center roadway, as we call it, uh, in June of 2017, because uh, there okay. was a preceding contract before us that had to essentially move the HOV lanes from the center roadway to the outer roadways. Um, and, and with that came some increased traffic in the Mount Baker and Mercer Island tunnels. Uh, so that required a retrofit of the fire life safety systems in those tunnels. So that was a pretty large project in and of itself to to allow us to just get access to, uh, you know, our, our work area in the center roadway. Okay. So I know there was a vehicular bridge, floating bridge that was constructed. So you're going in between that. Is that what you're doing? So it's, there's, there's two floating bridges. Uh, well, there's actually three floating bridges across Lake Washington, but the 520 is further north. 
um, on I-90, there's two separate floating bridges. There's the Homer M. Hadley, uh, which, which serves the westbound of what used to be the center roadway, which was a reversible roadway uh, that changed directions based on the peak flows of traffic. And then there's the Lacey v. Morrow Bridge, and that handles the eastbound traffic. And so what we're doing is we're building uh, train tracks to run on the center roadway portion, uh, which is part of the Homer M. Hadley Bridge. It's essentially the what was the two southern lanes on the Homer M. Hadley Bridge. Okay. Okay. So what has been some of the more challenges of this project, do you think? Oh, man. Um, there's so many. Uh, you know, it's just, or, you could just imagine, right? I mean, we're trying to put a, a train on a floating bridge, right? And it's just it's right. something that's never been done before. And when you start to think about uh, any type of construction on a, you know, a moving structure, you know, that just adds a level of complication that you're not typically used to in a, you know, civil construction environment. You're usually dealing with, you know, fixed structures. And, you know, you, I mean, just, just the process of surveying on something that's moving. Uh, is mm-hmm. difficult in and of itself. Um, so there, there's a lot of challenges, and you know sometimes you go into some meetings and you feel like your your head is spinning when you get out. Uh, but it takes a lot of different subject matter experts uh, coming together and, and working together to, to overcome these challenges we as we take it. Um, I could probably just kind of walk you through you know just a timeline yeah, uh, of, of what what we've done yeah since we got access, and that kind of will explain some of the challenges we've had to overcome as we've gone through it. Uh, do you want to focus mostly on construction? Yes. Yep. That's fine. Okay. All right. Uh, so, like I said, we got access in June of 2017, uh, and that really, um, you know, unfortunately, that was the earliest we could get it. Uh, but that was a challenge in and of itself because on the floating bridge, and I mean, just got to backtrack a little bit. You got to know the history of this area. On you know, in in the state of Washington, we've had two floating bridges that have sunk. You know, at the Hood Canal and then on on the I-90 corridor. Uh, so there's a, there's a high level of sensitivity and concern anytime you're working on a floating bridge. Um, and there's some strict guidelines that were derived out of um, the Blue Ribbon Panel report that the uh, the governor issued after the floating bridge sank in I-90. But um, one of those constraints, which is a big one, is that heavy construction is only allowed uh, in the months between April and September. Mm-hmm. So coming in in the first season in June, you, you've essentially lost half your season, right? And trying to make, you know, Meaningful work in that in that in that first season when you only have a few months well, was pretty difficult. Um, we were able to hit the ground running to a certain extent because we utilized an alternative contract package method uh, called heavy civil GCCM, which is mm-hmm. more or less a you know a hybrid between you know design build and the traditional design bid build, uh, where you bring your contractor in during the design phase and they offer uh, constructability reviews. They give you some help with uh, scheduling and and costs, so you have a little bit more certainty on that. Um, and something, you know, unique we did on this job was that we built in a, uh, a mock-up of the track attachments that we were going to build on the floating bridge because, like a lot of the things we do on the floating bridge, you know, it's, it's just never been done before, and you don't want to be, you know, trying things out for the first time uh, on the floating bridge itself. So doing a mock-up um, and then using that information to build into our, you know, contract specifications and and working with, uh, you know, the third-party owner of the structure, Washod, you know, Sound Transit, we're going to be running trains on this bridge, but Washod uh, owns the bridge, and we're, we're, we're leasing the, the the space to actually run the train. So there's, you know, a lot of uh, checks and balances, if you will, and a lot of uh, control that, you know, we needed to get approvals well in advance, or else we would not have been able to start 
construction the way we wanted. Uh, but before we could even start building tracks, we had to post-tension uh, floating bridge. And it's an external post-tensioning. Even though it's inside of the pontoon, it's considered, considered external post-tensioning because it's not within the actual structural concrete itself. Um, and this was actually the, the, as far as we know, all the research we did, this is the longest uh, post-tensioning that's ever been done in the world. It's about a little over 3,000 feet. Um, and we actually ended up winning an award with the Post-Tensioning Institute for the, uh, the Award of Excellence uh, because it was, you know, it was just such an amazing thing we did. But we had to do that, and the reason we had to do that first is because the, the forces from the post-tensioning, you know, which ideally is, you know, it's just it's compressing the structure, and the, you know, the floating bridge is made up of a bunch of different pontoons that are bolted together, you know, and each one's about 360 feet long. And by coring holes through each of those pontoons, which sounds like a bad idea when you're dealing, you know, working on a floating bridge, you know, coring a bunch of holes through it. Uh, but by coring holes through all the, the pontoons, uh, and, and, and running ducts through them and then building these, these massive anchor frames within the pontoons, uh, we were able to uh, induce, you know, a pretty significant force that compresses all of the pontoons together, keeping the concrete in a uh, compressive state, which makes it a lot stronger and more durable. With, you, know, you know, engineering, you know, uh, concrete's about 10 times stronger in compression than it is in tension. Um, so that, that increased, you know, the, the longevity of the bridge. It made it more durable. Uh, but because of the forces were so great, you actually shrunk the bridge. We shrunk the bridge by about four and a half inches. And when you're changing the profile like that, you can't you can't build track uh, before you before you do this because you want to make sure you're you're dealing with a, a static profile. So there's there's one of the big challenges right there was just just starting uh, late in the first construction season, having to undertake you know uh, a post tensioning element that was the longest post tensioning uh, in the world. Uh, all the while, you know, maintaining the watertight integrity of the structure um, throughout that process. Uh, mm -hmm. And that kind of leads into when you're working on a floating bridge, and another note, one of the constraints or specifications that we had was that you had to have a naval architect uh, on board. The contractor had to have one, and it was required for all floating bridge submittals that pertain to construction staging, uh, freeboard deflections, you know, temporary permanent ballasting, uh, you know, and like I said, the watertight integrity of the pontoons. We couldn't just drill a bunch of holes. You know, every time you drill a, a hole into the into the walls of the pontoon, you had to use a marine-grade plug uh, and test it, you know, and make sure that um, you sealed everything off because the, the floating bridge is designed uh, with a series of cells and watertight doors uh, to compartmentalize the structure such that uh, you can stop progressive flooding if you ever did, you know, start to take on any water in any one of those cells. So you, the bridge actually ended up being shortened. So how did you deal with filling up that 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 portion that was no longer there, so to speak? Oh, yeah, no, that's, that's that's a good question. So it you know it was shortened by four and a half inches, and right. uh, that's just made up with the uh, the expansion joints on each side. So divided by two, you get you know two and a quarter inches on each side, and uh, there's slide bearings, and that's that's another you know important thing to know about a floating bridge. You know the floating bridge. It's not just a floating bridge. It acts as a system, and it works with you have these approach structures on the end, and then you have transition spans, and then you go down to the floating bridge. And it's, okay. it's much like you see when you go to a lake, and you see the ramp that goes from land, and then the ramp takes you down to, say, like a floating dock, right? Okay. The, yeah. the ramp is allowed to, you know, move on a hinge up and down, and then it usually has some rollers or a slide bearing uh, so that it can move on the floating dock as the dock moves in and out. 
Uh, and the floating bridge is very similar. You know, the, 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 the approach structures are those, you know, fixed elements, more or less the land. Uh, the, the transition span is that, you know, that hinge that allows it to go up and down and then slide with uh, the floating bridge. Uh, and then the floating bridge itself moves in all kinds of different directions. You know, we had to deal with uh, uh, roll, pitch, and yaw. You know, if you're familiar with those terms, it's essentially just, you know, the up and down, left and right, and then the twist uh, of the structure. And, you know, that's that leads into another one of the really unique elements of this job is that uh, you're building rail over these expansion joints, which have to accommodate all these different movements. And that's that's you, you don't see that ever in, in rail construction because you're typically dealing with a uh, a fixed structure on land and you're dealing with, you know, expansion joints that handle longitudinal movements. Uh, so to, to build rail, you know, something that, that isn't able to handle all those movements, you can't have your rail, you know, accommodating that much uh, side to side, you know, up and down and even twist. It's going to stress the rail out too much. Uh, so a really unique design element that that uh, the team came up with was these, these track bridges. And we call them track bridges because they've, they bridge over these expansion joints. And the track bridges themselves, you know, there's, there's YouTube videos which make it a lot easier to, to visualize what I'm talking about. Uh, but they're essentially these, these uh, double curved wing structures that have bearing uh, bars across them. And then they have a series of uh, dual pendulum bearings. And when they work all together, uh, they're able to accommodate all those different movements of the floating bridge and, and you know, at each of those transitions from, say, the the fix to the transition span and the transition into the floating bridge, uh, they're able to accommodate all those movements and really minimize the amount of movement that the actual rail has to induce. Uh, so, it's, I mean, it's really an ingenious design, and you know, but again, something that hadn't been done before. Uh, so it went through, you know, extensive uh, peer review and you know testing, uh, and then when we got into construction, uh, luckily, you know, we were able to stick with the same firm that. Um, uh, Jesse Engineering down at Tacoma, they fabricated the two prototypes that were used for all the testing that was done in Pueblo, Colorado, um, and they ended up fabricating the other six. We ended up using the two prototypes as well uh, so for a total of eight track bridges because there's four expansion joints, right? You got one when you go from the approach to the transition span. You got another one from the transition span to the floating bridge, uh, and then two more on the other side, and then when you multiply that by two because you have an eastbound and westbound track, uh, you get eight track bridges. But those those track bridges, like I said, they were fabricated down in Jesse Engineering, and they went through, you know, extensive kinematic testing, uh, where they went, you know, each of those moving parts had to go through a series of uh, testing and cycles to make sure that they were able to accommodate the range of movements uh, that we needed. Uh, but when they, they all work together, they disperse the amount of movement and the load uh, considerably to the point that uh, when these things tested out, we were actually able to run uh, trains going 55, four car trains running 55 miles per hour across them um, with, you know, a pretty smooth ride in the testing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So after the post-tensioning, then what came after the post-tensioning? So we completed the post-tensioning in 2018, and, and the, the, the biggest thing in 2017 was uh, building the uh, reaction frames for this post-tensioning, because like I said, each 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 tendon, we did 20 tendons all, all together that went through, and each one was carrying 615,000 pounds of force. Mm -hmm. uh, so these the, the frame that you would need to build to accommodate those forces is, is huge. I mean, each each frame uh, weighed 20,000 pounds, and there was 10 on each side uh, of the floating structure. And so to to just build it 
was an immense challenge because you're, you're basically going through a three-foot by two-foot hatch opening on the deck of the roadway, and you're having to lower in all the parts and pieces for these frames and then traverse them through the pontoon cells through these, you know, watertight kind of submarine-looking doors uh, that you have to open and then get them into their destination cell where you then build these massive frames and you have to bolt them all together. You know, mind you, one of them was 3,500 pounds, one of the pieces to just give you an idea of, you know, how big these things were and how much we had, weight we had to move around. Um, and, you know, really innovative stuff using, you know, a series of carts with Teflon surfaces, you know, to slide members across when you were meeting up at a doorway. Um, and then a bunch of, you know, you know, chains and hoists just to just move things around and, and achieve the, the, the really tight geometry we had in there. Um, and even that, you know, we had to do, um, we had to do this LIDAR scanning before we even got to fabrication because each, each pontoon cell where we built these frames, uh, was unique. And so we had to do 3D LIDAR scanning of all the surfaces in there. Uh, and then that 3D scan was then used. And again, this was down at Jesse Engineering at Tacoma. Uh, they, they ended up fabricating these, each of these frames, you know, to bear up against these, you know, unique surfaces in each of the pontoons to carry all these forces and, and uh, transfer them into the concrete uh, without, you know, creating any point loads and doing it in a way that the structure could handle. Uh, but that, that was the big part. We got the frames in there. Uh, more or less by, you know, 2017 or in the early 2018. We completed the post-tensioning towards the end of the 2018 work window, which, again, was April through September. Uh, and then we could actually begin our, our track construction. And we began that in um, in late 2018, uh, just getting, you know, our, our first kind of initial uh, test section, uh, if you will, uh, which which went a lot smoother because we used uh, this, this alternative delivery method, and we ended up doing that mock-up. Uh, that I had talked about before, I think it was like a 150-foot uh, mock-up section that we did during pre-construction. So we weren't just starting from scratch. I mean, we we knew what worked, we knew what didn't, um, because again, this, even the track attachments themselves, this is this is very unique stuff. We, you know, this isn't the typical uh, direct fixation track you'd see where you're doweling uh, into an existing, you know, uh, concrete surface, creating a mechanical connection, and then and then pouring a concrete plinth around it, and then you know, fastening rail to the concrete uh this is all this is all unique we couldn't we couldn't have any penetrations into the bridge deck because again mm. you're dealing with a floating structure and you don't want to have water intrusion uh so what mm. we had to do was we had to ad- adhere blocks to the uh, to the surface of the deck and we also had to be mindful of weight you know you're dealing with a floating structure you only have so much weight to play with um so you had to be really efficient with it so we had to use a lightweight uh concrete which you know Still concrete, it still, it still weighs quite a bit, but you know, using lightweight aggregates that are a lot more porous, uh, it, it creates some difficulties just in batching the concrete. Uh, but that was that was done all in the uh, precast yard. Um, both cast did that, and it was a lightweight concrete that they would they would fabricate. It would then get shipped to uh, the construction site, and then they would pour a layer of an elastomeric grout, uh, which was called cork elast. Right, and we use that, and essentially you can see little pieces of cork in it. It's kind of a rubberized grout with uh, with, with cork in it, uh, and and that served for two purposes. It was it, it provided resiliency um, to to the to the rail system uh, for you know dampening any you know vibrations and you know creating a smoother ride. But then it also uh, acted as a fuse. Uh, if you were going to have a failure in any of this uh, track attachment system, we didn't want the failure transferring to the structure and the bridge deck itself. We wanted the failure to be within the actual track attachment and the plinth. Uh, so that was that purpose. And then after you had poured that elastomeric grout layer, then it was ready to be you know, shipped out to site. 
and it could be installed. Um, and again, a lot of challenges here because it's precast and you're dealing with, you know, you had to survey and lay all this stuff out in advance and these blocks were made in half inch increments. Uh, so there was only so much play you had and we didn't have that much adjustability with, with shims. Uh, so there's a lot of work on the front end to just, we had to grind the surface of the overlay to create a uniform surface. We had to uh, do all of our survey for our, our, our alignment, uh, you know, uh, order all the right size blocks, um, and then make sure that you sequence your construction and you're very organized on how you bring them out uh, so that then you could adhere them with this uh, epoxy grout, which we uh, we use called DEX-G. And this stuff is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky to deal with. It's very expensive. Uh, and it has, you know, some pretty strict uh, QA, QC requirements when it comes to, you know, mixing and, and timing. Uh, but we would essentially still do top-down construction. We'd bring the rail out there. We would hang these lightweight concrete blocks with the cork glass layer already cured and installed on the bottom. Um, and then if, once we had everything at the right elevation, we would then form up a little uh, area underneath, and we would then inject the epoxy grab, the DEX-G, underneath the blocks. Uh, and then just then just use a uh, like a like a steel wire to kind of screed it back and forth to eliminate any any air bubbles, um, and just do this you know one at a time you know just 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 rinse and repeat all the way through and there's there's probably more than eight thousand blocks all together on the bridge, so I mean and that kind of that ties into the the, uh, the ballasting element right I mean as as you're working on the floating bridge each time you're bringing weights on you know, you need to be adjusting the weight on the bridge, and that's either, you know, temporary ballasting on the surface or that's the, you know, uh, ballast rock that's inside the pontoons. Um, and that's where the naval architect comes in. You know, and so the, the contractor, you know, to their credit, they were, you know, really innovative with how they dealt with some of this stuff because we were, we were already needing to reduce weight on the bridge just given the fact that we were going to be installing all this rail. Um, so one of the ways we were reducing weight was, uh, the design called for removing uh, the barrier on the south side of the home room and the bridge. It was a barrier that was to protect, you know, cars. We didn't need it anymore. Uh, we could get away with a cable barrier. So the contractor, you know, saw cut it at the base. Uh, but rather than just removing it all after it had been saw cut, they just took it off and set it down right there. And then you could use that as temporary ballast. And as you started to bring materials onto the bridge, you could then remove sections of that uh, temporary uh, barrier that you had that you had cut off and try to equalize things and minimize the amount of times that you actually had to go into the pontoons and move ballast rock around because that was very difficult to do. Right. Wow. Okay. Who was the contractor on this bridge? So it's a it's a joint venture. Uh, Keywood Hoffman is a joint venture on the E-130 contract, uh, but Keywood is self-performing the uh, the track portion. So they they did pretty much everything on the floating bridge. What uh, was Keywood, and you know they're. They're experts in this field. They're the foremost contractor when it comes to, you know, floating bridge construction. I mean, they were just coming off the 520, uh, the longest floating bridge in the world, you know, that just got constructed. So they had the right people, the right experience, um, and they've been, you know, they've been excellent to work with. And I think that was that was really key, too, you know, just working with WashDOT, who owned the bridge, um, you know, having that level of confidence uh, that we had the right people and having those discussions with them in advance really set it up for success or else we could have spent, you know, Years going back and forth on how we were actually going to build the thing and, and, you know, and, and not cause any problems with the bridge during construction because cars are running on it, you know, while we're building this thing, we're, we're essentially on an operating facility. Right. And when you, when you refer to mock-ups and test sections, were they all done in Pueblo or some done in Pueblo, some done at the Canson Yard? Where were they? Uh, so the, 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 
track bridge testing was done in Pueblo, and that was part of the design okay. phase. Um, okay. But the mock-up of the actual track attachments themselves, that was done during pre-construction, uh, I want to say 2016 timeline, and that was done um, up north in Woodenville in a yard that, that, that Keywood had. Okay. Okay. So are you now just in that process of, of what you described as far as installing the track, or is there another step that comes after that before you get to Yeah, so that, that's where we're at. We've uh, we've installed uh, all the eastbound track. Uh, the eastbound track was a little bit trickier because it had a, a guardrail segment in it uh, because that's the side that's closest to the lake. And so, you know, right. the, we're in a completely tangent section, but just, you know, belt and suspenders here, you couldn't have a derailment. Uh, going into the lake, so we have we have guardrail on that side, um, but now we're working on the westbound side. And like I said, you know we got to do our heavy construction during uh, the months of April through September. So the goal is to get this thing done uh, this year with the vast majority by the end of this uh, summer season. And we've already set all of all eight of the track bridges. Uh, I think there's still a little bit of work to do on a, on a couple of them to do just kind of the final final adjustments and, and, and final setting. But most of the stuff is in place, um, which which is great. But it also makes your life a little more difficult, right? I mean, we're we're dealing with a very narrow uh, area to begin with. You know, essentially, you know, I think it's about 40 feet wide. And when you we had you know plenty of room, you know, that's a relative term, but we had a lot more room when we were building the eastbound track. But now that the eastbound track is built out and we're building the westbound track, uh, we don't have very much room, you know, and, and, and WashDOT still needs to do their their operations and maintenance on this floating yeah. bridge. There's there's a series of hatches, and so there's like a 10-foot corridor we have to maintain at all times just for them because uh, if any of the water intrusion alarms go off, if they need to do their routine uh, anchor cable adjustments, uh, whatever reason, uh, they need to get into those, those, those hatches at any moment. So... Mm -hmm. We're dealing with, you know, a very tight area, and, you know, I think we're restricted down to golf cart access at best uh, at, at this point. And so while, the you know, the westbound track doesn't have the guardrails, you know, so that it has less flint and less work, it's, it's becoming a bit of a challenge just based on the amount of real estate we're dealing with. How are you dealing with the, the tighter space then? Are you doing anything differently than you did with the eastbound? Uh, I mean, you gotta be you, you got to be really thoughtful of how you, how you sequence your work. Uh, you know, and just just the timing of you know delivering and playing those those track bridges. You know, you, you're cutting yourself off at that point. So you really got to look downstream and just make sure you've accounted for the work that's going to happen after you, and and you haven't cut yourself off. Uh, we do have access points on uh, either side of the bridge, so we can come in from from either way if we need to. And then there's also you know if if you ever needed to, you can you, know, you can do traffic control uh, to close some lanes on the westbound side to you know deliver anything that you'd need to put. Uh, on the other side of the barrier there, but uh, the team's been pretty good. You know, I mean, every, everybody understands, you know, this constraint, and we've been looking at this thing for years. I mean, the, the entire project, it's a, you know, it's a seven-mile project that goes from downtown Seattle all the way to the uh, the East Channel Bridge, just touching in Bellevue there, and the entire job is in the center roadways, so you're essentially bound by, you know, freeways on both sides, and you only have so many access points along the entire corridor, and if you don't sequence things right, and you're not, you're not, you know, thoughtful and organizing how you do your work, you cut yourself off and you essentially paint yourself into a corner. Uh, right. So it's just, it just takes a lot of, a lot of thought and a lot of scheduling and a lot of coordination uh, with all the different people that are working out there to make sure that you don't, you know, cut yourself off like that. Okay. So 
this rail bridge was always intended to to go down the center here. It wasn't something that was just kind of added on uh, at a later date, correct? Uh, yes and no. The the, the, okay. the the floating bridge that we're on, they always anticipated some form of um, high capacity transit to go on the okay. bridge. Uh, it could right. have been anything, but light rail, right, light rail was one of them. Uh, they just didn't know how they were going to overcome some of the challenges. You know, and and that's what you know this design team and this construction team was was tasked with doing, and you know that's why it's been you know twelve plus years in the making. If you go to you know from conceptual through preliminary final design and then into pre-construction and then construction, I mean it's it's taken that much time. You know, and I think even the the design phase, I believe there was you know sixty to seventy thousand hours uh, spent on the development, you know, engineering, testing, and you know, and, and the construction of the prototypes just to just to make sure, you know, we were at a level of comfort that you needed for something that had never been done before. Okay, so COVID-19, the pandemic. Now, I know Sound Transit uh, put some projects on hold at one point. I don't know if that affected your project, but how did you, how have you been working through this pandemic, uh, you know, as far as, you know, social distancing and all that kind of stuff on the job site? Uh, it's a tough one. You know, it's it's, it's an ever-changing landscape. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, every, it seems like every week you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, new information, uh, potentially new constraints. You know, governor proclamations come out. You, you have to adjust. Um, it's It's been really tough. You know, I mean, fortunately, it's not a situation like a station uh, where you have a lot of people and you have rooms. And, you know, you might have trades stacked on top of each other that need to coordinate like that. Uh, track construction tends to be pretty linear. Um so we, I think, I think it's, you know, it makes it a little bit more possible for us. And, you know, thank goodness we're done with the work inside the pontoon, because uh, I think that would have been a lot harder to pull off, you know, working in a confined space while trying to, you know, uh, safely mitigate the risks that come with, uh, you know, COVID-19. Um, but, but we've been able to do it. Um, this was deemed as, you know, one of the more essential uh, portions uh, of the project for, for, for a multitude of reasons. Um, you, you don't want to leave the, the bridge in a state of construction. So I think it's important to the public. Uh, for, for, for several reasons to just keep progressing on the floating bridge. But then there's also the schedule constraints that I mentioned to you earlier, where you have essentially six months of each year, uh, to really do your heavy construction. And if you miss on that, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like missing the bus. You know, you, you, you're not just late one minute, you're late until the next opportunity you get, you get back on. And in our case, that means, you know, uh, six months. So you could, you could have a six month impact. You know, which in a job of this magnitude, you know, which is part of a, a larger project, which is Eastlink, um, the impacts, you know, are just so detrimental that, you know, it was it was something that we just, you know, we couldn't we couldn't just pause completely. We had to figure out a way to work with it. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm proud to say the team has done an excellent job and keep it, especially, you know, when it comes to you know the safety uh, planning and, and and making sure that uh, we're abiding by all the requirements and, you know, in the proclamation and, you know, and some of the guidelines for receiving, um, we've, we've, we've figured out a way to do it. And, and like I said, I think the work, um, you know, luckily uh, is conducive to allow that. So uh, do you, I'm assuming you guys screen all the workers before they go on the job site and has there been any uh, instance where a worker had to be quarantined or anything like that over the last few months? Yeah, correct. Uh, we do temperature screenings for everybody that comes in, um, and I believe even with the new phasing, that's not even necessarily required anymore, but we still do it uh, because we feel like it's effective. Um, yeah, we have had um, some instances of, of, of people testing positive, 
Uh, and when that happens, you have to quarantine the entire crew. Um, right. And then they go on, you know, quarantine, and then they need to produce these two negative tests before they can come back to work. Uh, we have logs that document contact tracing, not just for contractor crews, but also uh, our consultants, our third parties, partners uh, like Washdot, you know, our, our sound transit employees. Uh, so it's uh, it's something you got to act quickly on. You know, when you when you find out that somebody's been identified positive, I'd have to initiate all the protocols from quarantine to contact tracing, and then if through contact tracing you identify uh, more people, then you know you just it just follows on until you've covered all your bases and. Uh, People have, you know, uh, provided the the right documentation so they can come back to work and, you know, not risk infecting anybody. So that's kind of keep you on edge, knowing that, like you said, you only have until September and you could have to quarantine a crew for a couple of weeks. I mean, do you have like another crew to come in then that that, you know, was was not working with the, the infected worker, or how, how does that work? Or do you just you, you don't just shut down for two weeks, correct? No, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, and yeah, luckily, you know, we're building seven miles of track, not just the track on the floating bridge. So there are other crews we can draw on if that situation presents itself. Um, fortunately, one of the floating bridge crews hasn't been affected. Um, yes, there's been other track crews that have. Uh, okay. But if we need to, we can bring in uh, workers from other segments on the job. We have a de- very detailed construction work plan that's uh, been vetted uh, by, you know, a lot of different parties. Um, and that's it's, it's more of a you know a manual and and once you you know it's very repetitive because you got 8,000 of these blocks um, and so our QAQC staff uh, they know what to look for uh, we know how to build these things um, and and we got to make sure that we have the right management folks and so there's um, we have a level of redundancy you know both with uh, resources management and then QAQC uh, to ensure that you know this particular part of the job does not just shut down for two weeks right okay. How does it feel to be part of this? It's you know you're making history here basically. How does it feel to be part of of this type of a project? Oh, it's cool. You know, I mean, uh, the thought just popped in my head. It's uh, it's almost like parenting. It's uh, equally challenging and rewarding at the same time. You know, where it's just it it can be very stressful. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's a lot of pressure. Everybody on the team. I mean, top notch folks. Everybody really wants to succeed. Uh, but there's some challenges and some problems that you face. Um, that, you know, you, like I said, you can leave a meeting, you know, your head will be spinning, you go, wow, you know, there's just so many different things to consider here. Uh, but I think the team's pretty battle-tested at this point, you know, like it's, it's, we've, we've, we've met our fair share of challenges and we've overcome each one. Um, and, you know, the old boss I had, you know, Dick Sage used to say there's a technical solution for every technical problem. You just got to have the right people there and the right leadership in place. And, and I think we have that. Um, again, back to what you're asking, I mean, how does it feel? It's, it's a great sense of pride, uh, I think, all the way across from, you know, top to bottom, uh, whether you're talking about the executives at Sound Transit or the laborers down there uh, working on the project. Uh, everybody takes pride in this, and, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of recognition, you know, stuff like this, like interviews that we're doing, um, you know, tours that get requested uh, from, you know, board members or even, you know, the head of the FDA wanted to come out um, and, and see what was going on. Um, and then also, you know, I think we, we have a, a TV show, Impossible Engineering, that's going to be uh, airing a special on the project uh, next Wednesday, I believe, the 22nd. Um, and that's going to be, yeah, that's going to be on, on this project, you know. So it's like I got right. to go out with them and kind of help them, show them the lay of the land and, you know, help the production crew kind of put together some stuff. So, yes, it's it's really cool stuff that we're doing. And sometimes you got to just take a step back and just appreciate that you're a part of something like this. 
Anything else you you want to add? Anything that, that we have missed? I mean, you've been very thorough throughout the whole interview. So, anything else you want to add, though? Uh, yeah, no, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't just speak to um, cathodic protection and and stray current. Uh, that is one of the biggest risks that we face, and that's you know another one of those ones that's really technically challenging. Uh, but it's essentially you know the the the, the high voltage for the uh, to power the trains that we're going to be running. Uh, over the floating bridge um, also creates a scenario where you can have some stray current. Uh, and stray current can be problematic because uh, if it starts to get to steel, when that current actually leaves the steel, it causes corrosion and it can cause advanced corrosion. Uh, and when you're talking about a structure that is so valuable to the region um, and, you know, would cost so much and have such great impacts if, if you know, if you accelerated uh, the corrosion of it and needed to replace it, you, you got to make sure that you're doing everything you can uh, to mitigate that risk. And it's been, you know, a multi-pronged effort uh, to make sure that we have the right cathodic protection uh, in place to account for. And, and it's it's kind of a complicated uh, subject, but, you know, essentially, you know, a lot of the stuff that I told you about earlier, you know, that core glass, that elastomeric route, uh, DEXG, that epoxy route, um, these these, these uh, track attachments, these splints, you know, we, we put these rain hats on them, if you will. Uh, it's kind of like a, you know, like a plastic tray but it, it, it blocks it from the ability to have a stream of water coming off it and creating a path. I mean, you're just you're trying to block every potential path for straight current to get into uh, the, the bridge steel and not just the bridge reinforcing, but the anchor cables that are in the water that are holding it down. Uh, we also sprayed this material called polyurea all over the deck. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it looks kind of like something you put on your garage floor, uh, but it's, uh, it, it's just another method to, to block it. And in addition to that, we also have a, you know, straight current collector cable that we have attached to the side of these plants. And it's essentially just a copper cable that's, you know, like just uh, goes, you know, almost like daisy chain all the way across uh, to the ends of the bridge to just, just in case. I mean, this is, you know, belt and suspenders and then some. Because uh, if, even if all those methods to block it didn't work and there's some straight current that got away, we can catch it in that straight current collector cable. It'll take it to the ends of the bridge and ground it. Uh, and then last, there's this cathodic protection system, um, and that's these uh, rectifiers that are inside the pontoons, uh, and they're, they're pretty cool. I mean, they're these uh, they're, they're they're automated uh, to calibrate. Uh, you know, they detect they have reference cells in the water that detect the amount of uh, current, and you know that, that that's that they're that they're seeing, uh, and then they calibrate and they actually impress current. Uh, into the steel, not just the, it uh, used to just be for the uh, anchor cables, but we're coming on board improving the cathodic protection system for the bridge and not just the Home Ram Hadley Bridge, but the other bridge that writes, that's right next to us, the Lazy V Morrow. Um, and we're, we're impressing a current into the structural steel because, uh, like I said earlier, you get corrosion when the current leaves the steel. So if you can keep the current impressed in the steel, you actually prevent that from happening. Uh, and these rectifiers, they do that. Like I said, they're constantly taking uh, measurements. Uh, and then calibrating themselves to impress the right amount of current into the uh, anchor cables and the structural reinforcing steel. Um, and it's it's a delicate balance. You know, you can go from, uh, if you're not impressing enough, you could have cathodic, I mean, you could have corrosion, but if you impress too much, you can have something even worse that's called, you know, hydrogen embrittlement. Uh, so it's, it's it's a pretty scientific approach uh, wow. to just make sure that we're doing everything possible to preserve uh, the steel for, like I said, both for the anchor cables that tether these pontoons down and hold them in place, uh, and then also the, uh, the the structural steel that's, uh, you know, uh, for the, the integrity of the structure.
success on top of all the engineering challenges, all the design challenges, all the construction challenges, all the challenges with mother nature, you're also doing this in the middle of a pandemic. Simply amazing. What an incredible job they are doing over there in the Pacific Northwest. We named this project among our 2020 RTNS top projects list and it was a no-brainer. I would like to thank Sepper Sobani for joining us. Expect another podcast very soon for RTNS Magazine and Rail Group On Air. I'm Bill Wilson and I will see you down the line.